Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And a warm welcome to First Move live once again from London. My last show until 2023, a dramatic news year behind us. I think we can all agree seven Fed rate hikes saw growth investors flee. A central bank pivot next year? Still no guarantee. Also, Elon Musk bought Twitter for an exorbitant fee. What happens next year that we can foresee? Well, no one better to ask than Roger McNamee, the co-founder of private equity firm Elevation Partners and Mark Zuckerberg's former mentor, too, likens the media obsession with Musk to the outsized attention given to former President Donald Trump. He's calling for a different approach to Musk mania. But of course, we still need to cover the Tesco business. Somehow, tech analyst Dan Ives is charged up on his 2023 outlook on the firm's core EV business. So we will be discussing that too. Key sales numbers set to be released that will shed important light on consumer demand and, of course, production too for Tesla, especially in key market China. In the meantime, U.S. futures currently higher on this second to last trading day of the year, but still a challenging week, it seems, for U.S. stocks. The U.S. majors fell more than 1% during Wednesday's session. The S&P and the Nasdaq currently on track for a fourth straight week of losses and a rare December pullback. Just to give you some context for the year, the S&P is now down 20% year to date and the Nasdaq down 34%. Of all the major global stock markets, only the Hang Seng, in fact, can truly be seen as a December winner. Down today, but up more than 6% over the past month. The Hang Seng, in fact, making a stunning 30% turnaround since November amid China's sharp pivot from zero COVID policies. And Hong Kong officially scrapping almost all of its COVID health measures Thursday. Reports say it will reopen its border to mainland China early next month too. But of course, as we've long discussed now, reopenings carry sizable health risks. And we're learning that many passengers on two planes from China to Milan on Monday tested positive for COVID. Most had no symptoms at all. A full report on that just ahead. But first, we begin in Ukraine. And Ukrainian officials are calling on residents to stay in shelters after what they called a massive missile attack. The Ukrainian military says 54 of the 69 missiles launched by Russia were downed. At least two people, though, were killed in attacks on the Kharkiv region, according to a local official. In the west of the country, Lviv's mayor says 90% of his city is currently without power. And Sidens Badwidman is in the capital, Kyiv with more. Julia, according to the mayor of Kyiv, 16 missiles were fired in, dire- in the direction of the capital, all of them successfully intercepted. But the problem is, even when these interceptions take place, debris falls to the ground. Here at this location, you're seeing massive destruction. The clear-up crews are already uh, here. Police tell us that a 14-year-old girl was injured at this location. Her mother also injured. Her mother currently in surgery. Another man nearby was also hurt. Now, this does seem to be one of the largest 
attacks by the Russians using missiles and drones, according to the uh, Ukrainian government, more than 120 missiles and drones were fired today in across the country at various cities. Here in Kyiv, 40% of the power is out at the moment. The mayor has called upon people to charge their phones, stock up on water because they don't know when the electricity will be restored. In the city of Lviv, in the western part of the country, 90% of the electricity has been knocked out. In Kharkiv, in the east, uh, the, we understand that four missiles did successfully hit energy infrastructure, and it does appear that energy infrastructure was the target of this massive Russian strike. It appears the Russians want to leave this country cold and in the dark just before New Year's. Now, according to the commander-in-chief of the Ukrainian Armed Forces, in addition to the drones, 69 of the missiles fired, 54 of them were successfully intercepted. Julia? Ben Weedman there. Now, nations across the world taking action amid relaxed travel restrictions and a mounting surge in COVID cases in China. The U.S. has ordered all passengers from China to take a COVID test now before boarding flights. EU health security officials are meeting today to discuss ways that the response may even be coordinated. Italy, however, has already responded and is enforcing mandatory testing on arrival. Prime Minister Giorgia Maloney is urging the EU to follow its lead. In fact, on one flight from China to Milan, over half the passengers tested positive for the virus this week. Barbie Nadal has more from Rome. Barbie, great to have you with us. It's interesting. I, I was looking at the new rules that the United States is going to impose, and they don't come into effect until midnight on January the 5th. And I never really understand that week gap because a lot of people could travel. And I think Italy, in terms of their testing and what they're finding, proves that point. Oh, that's absolutely right. But, you know, you have to remember, Italy is a little bit stung from the first round of this pandemic. Italy was, of course, the first epicenter outside of China back in 2020, early 2020. And I remember sitting here talking about how they were restricting flights then, too. This testing is mandatory on these flights coming from China. And one of the things that is really interesting about it is that while the test itself is mandatory, it's just an antigen test being done at the airport, people are then being told they have to isolate. That's not exactly being enforced with any sort of law enforcement. People who tested positive are told they must isolate. Now, how they get out of the airport, how do they get to their hotels, that's all just a little bit sketchy at this point. But I suspect those rules will be more strict now that these tests are proving to be very, very uh, inconclusive indeed, Julia. Yeah, and this is part of the challenge. What are people saying there? Because I think we've seen political shifts, political changes. And of course, we heard from the new prime minister today on, on some of these measures as well and what they're finding in terms of testing. What are people saying about these restrictions? Are they, are they welcoming them? Are they concerned? What are people saying there? Well, you know, I think it's, there are two ways to look at this. You know, you're looking at, number one, what kind of vaccine did the people that are coming on these flights have? A lot of the Chinese citizens, Chinese nationals, would have had the Chinese vaccine. A lot of other people, maybe people who are resident in Italy, maybe people who were traveling back and forth for work or, or whatnot, would have had the more the, 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 the other vaccines, the Pfizer, the Moderna, or some of those that have proven to be far more effective. So what they're doing is sequencing some of the results of these tests in order to find out what variant it is. And now so far, Omicron seems to be the prevalent var uh, variant 
on that flight from Milan. And so people, I think, here in Italy trust the healthcare system. They trust that the vaccines are going to work and they trust that the government is going to kind of guide them through it. We saw that the first time around. And I haven't seen anybody really protest the fact that the people are being tested off a flight. And in fact, I've seen some reports of people saying, well, every, t- every flight, not just from China, everyone should get tested once they arrive in this country, Julia. Yeah, Bobby, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that, Bobby Nadal there. Let's bring in Paula Hunkax now, who's following developments in Seoul on the China side of the equation. Paula, as you and I have been discussing, as China's rapidly trying to reduce restrictions and allow people to move from inside China outside, what we're seeing, of course, is restrictions being put up to some degree, at least, around the world. How are they being met by both Chinese citizens and, of course, by authorities there as well? Well, Julia, certainly Beijing is resisting and criticising what it sees uh, happening in certain countries around the world, even before the US officially announced that it was going to renew some of its uh, its quarantine, uh, excuse me, some of its testing requirements of travellers uh, from China. Beijing had already reacted. They said all parties need to work together scientifically against the epidemic to ensure the safe movement of people between countries. Now, of course, the irony wasn't lost on on many, given the fact that China has been uh, one of the most stringent countries when it comes to border restrictions, when it comes to lockdown, mass testing, and it's also had the longest zero COVID policy. Uh, But of course, that did end rather abruptly. The the restrictions are continuing uh, to be lifted. And certainly from January 8th, the international travel restrictions will be lifted even further. So We are seeing a number of countries around the world putting back these kind of testing requirements that they had disbanded months ago, uh, believing that they were no longer necessary. We heard from US officials when discussing the fact that they felt the need to put these restrictions back in place, uh, that, that it was from a public health point of view because there was a lack of transparent data coming from China itself, uh, saying that, uh, that it would be very difficult for public health officials to be able to pinpoint or identify any potential new variants uh, and uh, be able to act on them quickly to be able to reduce that spread. One interesting point, though, we have heard from the uh, the virus uh, database, the global virus database, uh, GISAID, which says that China has actually increased the amount of data that it is submitting and the genome sequencing up until this point does appear to be that which has been circulating around the globe since July. So uh, that will put some minds at rest at this point. But at the same time, we're also hearing from Beijing that they have scrapped their daily reporting uh, of COVID cases. They have refined what they consider now to be um, a death due to COVID. So the figures that will be coming out are not those that uh, that many public health officials around the world will be relying on or will be using to try and gauge the threat. Julia? Part of the problem, it's the the point that you made about the transparency and the ability to trust the data. And I think that's part of the reason perhaps why countries like Italy and of course the EU is talking about it, the United States already acting to make decisions for themselves um, with or without the provision of, of decent data. Paula, do we have any sense of how China's handling this, particularly in the bigger cities? There's some degree of was a great degree, a lack of understanding over whether or not the healthcare systems, as fast as they're ramping up the provisions and the ability of, of resources to be able to tackle the rising cases and those that, that sadly are, are very sick or, or worse in this case. Do we have any sense 
any clarity at this stage how well they're handling it. I think perhaps one of the, the bigger fears over the coming weeks is whether some of these uh, measures have to be reversed. Well, certainly what we're hearing from our teams on the ground, what we are seeing from social media uh, is that many hospitals are overwhelmed, that they are struggling to cope with the, the sheer number of, uh, of hospitalizations, of people coming in needing uh, to have, uh, have hospitalized care. Uh, and also when it comes to the very basic level of, uh, of being able to find the drugs that you need to treat yourself at home. We have been hearing about a, a lack of fever medication of cold medication uh, to be able to, uh, to to be able to treat yourself at home and not have to put an extra burden uh, on the uh, on the hospitals within the country uh, itself. And we've also seen from uh, our correspondent in Beijing, Selina Wang, she has been to areas uh, where they have seen in Beijing crematoriums being filled. Uh, there have been queues of, of cars and people outside these crematoriums waiting to hear when their loved one uh, may be able to be uh, to put to final rest. Uh, so it does appear to be a very difficult situation in China. It, I have to point out, it is very difficult also to be able to get a an overwhelming idea and a broad idea of just how bad the situation is, given the fact official data is not available. It's not even clear at this point whether official data is being gathered but health officials in, in China have made it very clear that they will not be publishing the daily COVID numbers, that they will not be uh, considering a COVID death the same way that many countries around the world may be. And so those numbers are going to be artificially low. So anecdotally, we can assess what it is like. Our teams on the ground can assess in a very small part what it is like. But to get that big picture, I think, will take some time to come out. Julia? No, and impossible. Hmm. Paula, great to have you with us. Thank you. Paula Hancock's there. OK, returning to Italy. And a short time ago, the Vatican announced that Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI is, quote, absolutely lucid and vigilant. The 95-year-old's condition remains serious but stable at the moment. Catholic leaders around the world, as well as Pope Francis, are urging the faithful to pray for the former pontiff. And joining us now is CNN's Vatican correspondent, Dila Gallagher. Dila, good to have you with us again. Yesterday you were saying it was a surprise what we heard the, the current Pope say at the end of prayers yesterday, asking for those messages of support for him. And, and now it seems a, a more positive tone. Can we say that? Yes, absolutely. Relatively good news, Julia, from the Vatican on Pope Benedict's health. Uh, as you say, they say he rested well last night. He is in serious but stable condition. And very interestingly, they say he's absolutely lucid and vigilant. And what this suggests to me is exactly that, Julia, that uh, from the news yesterday that his health was deteriorating and it was rather alarming, it seems now they are trying to calm the waters somewhat. Of course, we are still talking about a 95-year-old in frail health. So anybody who's cared for an elderly person knows that you cannot really tell. Sometimes there are ups and downs in these things. But certainly from this update today, I think the message from the Vatican is exactly as they say. The situation is stable. Uh, he is aware of what's happening. And it uh, seems to me that they do want to reassure people that at least for the moment, the Pope Emeritus is doing Okay. Julia? Good news and a beautiful uh, late afternoon sunshine there in Rome. Delia, great to have you with us. Thank you. Delia Gallagher there from Rome. 
Now, Tesla has a lot riding on how China handles its sudden exit from zero COVID. As we were just discussing, China's Tesla's second largest market and a country with massive global potential, growth potential too. But recent reports suggest the company is having trouble hitting its year-end targets with Chinese insurance registrations coming in weaker than expected. Production certain to be impacted by the recent spike in COVID cases too. And reports suggest the company's Shanghai plant could face an extended shutdown next month. China fears just one of the factors behind the recent weakness in Tesla's share price down some 68% year-to-date. Shares, though, have been perking up a little this week, a higher close Wednesday and a 6% pre-market bounce today too. But the wild ride for Tesla is surely not yet over. Elon Musk sent an email to employees this week urging them to, quote, ignore stock market craziness. Craziness, one could argue, is an understatement. And Dan Ives joins us now. He's the senior equity analyst at Wedbush Securities. We can talk about that comment, Dan, and great to have you on the show. But I do want you to put some context on these China production fears as well and the importance of that to the business, as you and I have discussed many times. Yeah, I mean, Julian, China is the hearts and lungs of the Tesla growth story. And I think for the first time, we're seeing cracks in the armor Domestically as well, Neo and other players, it's an arms race and clearly softening demand. And now for Musk and Tesla, it's navigating through the storm. It's been a Cinderella ride the last four or five years. And now there's clearly a category five storm ahead. Category five storm. Uh, we can bear that in mind. The stock's already down 68 percent year to date. And we've also discussed that uh, endlessly. You've now named three conditions that you think are required to be certain that we've seen the bottom for the share price and to see it rise again. Just walk us through those because they're sort of obvious, but very important. Well, I mean, look, first, I think most important is really ultimately naming a CEO of Twitter. And it's not just talk and talk, it's walking the walk. It's much removing himself with some day-to-day duties because that's part of the problem. Attention focused on Twitter instead of Tesla. It's been a black eye moment for Musk and a black eye for Tesla. So that's the first thing that needs to happen. The second, you know, ultimately, in our opinion, is, is, is really sort of weighing out conservative numbers for 2023. I think that's extremely important numbers that they could hit. It's a softer macro as we're talking about. And the third, a Pinocchio, a boy that cried wolf, stop selling stock. And if you are, put a 10B5 plan so investors know about it. And that's been the biggest problem. I mean, this has really been a crashing plane, you know, from the eyes of investors. And Musk has focused on salted or unsalted peanuts. Have you had any clients say I'm done? Dan, I know, again, you and I have discussed this many times where there's the sort of back and forth on this and there have been promises not to sell any more stock and then those have been broken. Have you had any investors say to you, Dan, you know, I, I understand why we're in this stock and why we're invested and why we like the longer term story. But at this moment, it's just too painful. Have you had any of those conversations? Well, I look, I, definitely. And I think institutional view has, has changed because I think there has been deterioration in the Musk brand. And institutional investors, they own Tesla for the transformational EV, you know, what I'll call arms rates over the coming years that Tesla continues to lead and the valuation of what that could be. The problem is a lot of these Musk antics, it's been albatross in the stock. And I think institutionally, you've seen many throw in the towel. And that's why this is a moment of truth for Musk to really navigate through this. And, and I think, you know, you've seen the clock strike midnight for a lot of investors in the near term, and you've seen a reflect in the stock. 
It's funny. Coming up on the show, we're going to speak to uh, former Mark Zuckerberg mentor, Roger McNamee, and he wrote an op-ed. You probably read it uh, in Time magazine saying that the media needs to rethink the way that they cover the, the Musk mania. And we're going to talk to him in a few moments. But he, he does say that we're doing it in a similar way that, that the media treated Donald Trump and that they're giving oxygen to a story. And actually investors in, in Tesla would be better off if the media stopped talking about Elon Musk and all the different headlines, irrespective of whether they're about Tesla or Twitter or anything else. Dan, do you think it would make your life easier? Do you have a view on this if, if the media actually just stopped I mean, covering look, some I, of this? Strong respect for Roger. I just disagree with the view. I mean, my view is that Musk is the most followed individual in the world. A modern day Albert Einstein, you know, Tom, you know however you want to call him, but he's going through a Howard Hughes moment. And ultimately, despite the Thomas Edison label, that's the worry. And this is self-inflicted. Remember, he started the five-alarm fire himself with Twitter. That's going to be known as a $700 billion mistake. He's the only one that could extinguish it. So I think that's the difference here is that, you know, I, I, I sort of disagree with that view in terms of what really Musk brought on here. Do you think he goes the way of Howard Hughes? Look, I believe for Musk, the problem is that you're like, okay, turn left. He'll be like, left, I'm going to turn right, and I'm going to love while I do it. So that's part of the problem here is that he needs to course correct. I think it's reflected in Tesla's stock. And that's why this is a key four to six weeks ahead, because it's still in the early days of the, you know, what I view as the transformational Tesla story. And I think Musk can navigate through this and course correct. But again, the, the, right now, Investors need a pilot for Tesla, not a Ted Stryker. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I mean, that whole left-right thing is perhaps why we have SpaceX and we've brought down the cost of space flight and things. There's just some balance there and um, we still have to find it. Dan, great to have you on, as always. Thank Happy you. Happy New Year. Dan Eyes, Senior Equity you Analyst too. at Wedgebush Securities. Welcome back to First Move. Any moment now, we'll see the swearing-in of Benjamin Netanyahu marking his return as Israeli Prime Minister. Live pictures here of the Knesset, which confirmed his cabinet just a short time ago. And to reach a majority, Netanyahu cemented alliances with hard-right parties opposed to Palestinian statehood. Elliot Gokin is watching all of this unfold for us in Jerusalem. Any moment now for that swearing-in, Elliot, and then a new Netanyahu era begins. Very much so, Julia. It looks like the opposition is, uh, is perhaps uh, stalling for a bit of time now, but any moment now, Netanyahu will be uh, confirmed, will be sworn in as Prime Minister for a record sixth time. The one thing that they have managed to do today, we've had speeches uh, from uh, Prime Minister-designate, still, uh, Netanyahu, and also the outgoing Prime Minister, uh, Yair Lapid. Uh, one thing that they did manage to do is they have voted in a new speaker, the first openly gay speaker of Israel's uh, Knesset, Amir Ohana, a very staunch Netanyahu uh, ally who has held ministerial positions uh, before uh, with his husband and two children uh, in the audience. And I would imagine that uh, Netanyahu uh, would uh, point uh, certainly to the speaker as being the perfect rejoinder to those who uh, are concerned that this new government may discriminate against 
against uh, members of the uh, LGBTQ uh, community. But uh, as I say, we heard from Netanyahu outlining his priorities uh, for this new government. He talked about preventing Iran getting a nuclear bomb, uh, boosting public transportation, including uh, a bullet train. Although anyone in this country who's seen how long it takes to build a, a kind of light rail in Tel Aviv will know that that's uh, still going to be some, some years away. Uh, he's also uh, talked as well uh, about, um, about bringing more peace agreements uh, with uh, other countries in the region to build on the uh, so-called uh, Abraham Accords as well. One thing he didn't talk about in his speech, but that was published in this new government's agenda, was the plan to develop uh, uh, the periphery of Israel, talking about the Galilee, talking about the Negev in the south, but also talking about Judea and Samaria, in other words, the West Bank. So this government says that it is planning to boost uh, construction of settlements in the uh, occupied West Bank, something that is illegal under international law and is sure to raise hackles among the Biden administration and other allies of Israel. Julia? Mm, most certainly. Elliot, great to have you with us. And uh, once again, that swearing-in set to take place any moment and we'll bring it to our viewers when it does. For now, thank you for that. Okay, to Cambodia now. New developments at the scene of a huge fire at a hotel and casino. Rescue operations have been suspended at the Grand Diamond Hotel in the city of Popet, just outside Thailand. 19 people have died and at least 70 people are missing after flames engulfed the building. Rescuers say that thick smoke is making it difficult to search the rooms. They've warned that the death toll is likely to rise. Welcome back to First Move. Journalism does not need Twitter. It cannot win a fight with Elon Musk on Musk's home turf. Quote, that's what tech investor and former advisor to Mark Zuckerberg, Roger McNamee, says in his latest op-ed about Musk's turbulent Twitter takeover. McNamee goes on to say, quote, the only way to beat people like Musk is not to play that game. That is the lesson we should have learned from Trump. It's the lesson we must learn now. The author, who is also and was an early investor in Facebook and Google, says journalists who are consumed by Musk's actions surrounding Twitter are making a mistake. Joining us now is Roger McNamee, the co-founder of Elevation Partners. Roger, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Talk to me about the parallels that you're seeing and what the fundamental message in this op-ed was, because I read this and it certainly struck me. So, so Julia, I think it works this way. Twitter matters because it has been an unmediated broadcast platform embraced by politicians, by celebrities, and therefore by journalists. And it was never perfect. It was always a place with a tremendous amount of hate on it. But what it did that was really unique was that it gave both consumers, but especially underserved communities, an opportunity to send their message directly to politicians, journalists, and celebrities. And as a result, a lot of communities that have historically been left out of our political conversation were involved in it. And a big part of what's been going on in the right is pushing back against all of those communities. And what Musk has done is he's come in and he's basically turned Twitter into a soap opera in which he is not just the star, but he's the only character with a light shining on him. And he's used that spectacle as cover for essentially undoing all of what's been good about Twitter and, and going after all of those communities that have historically depended on Twitter to participate in our political system. And journalists have been covering the spectacle 
and missing the underlying point, the really important point, which is that private ownership of the most important communications vehicles in our country makes you very dependent on the owner. And in this case, the owner is somebody with really bad intent. And amplifying, I think, some of the noise and, and amplifying the engagement on, on Twitter itself. How would you have journalists act? I think that's the response, because certainly in the discussions that I've already seen you the, seen you have, that the tendency is, as a business journalist in particular, to defend oneself when it's now a private company, but there's impact on a public company like Tesla as a result. I think we have to get away from that discussion and get back to the point that, that you were trying to make here, which is um, how best we handle a character like this and a situation like this particularly when I think democracy, free speech, all of these things are, are what you're talking about in the article are um, under consideration and perhaps at stake. How should journalists yeah. act? So, so, Julia, here's what I think the challenge is. The incentives of journalism are to follow spectacle because they have been sucked into the economic model of internet platforms like Twitter, like Facebook, like Instagram. And so they're playing constantly for attention. The problem is that the role of journalism historically in our politics and in our culture has been to stand up against powerful people, to be a counterweight against those who have power, to protect those who do not. And journalism in this era has lost sight of that. And the example I use is imagine if back in the era of the Pentagon Papers or Watergate, that the Washington Post or New York Times had buckled to the political pressure not to cover those stories. It's hard to imagine how bad things would have gotten in that area. And yet we routinely did this with Trump and we're doing it again with Musk. And I do think that the key thing is to recognize that journalism has responsibilities, not every single day, but at critical junctures to recognize when democracy is at stake and to recognize that there are times to cover spectacle and there are times when you need to simply be an adult and to look at the whole thing and recognize that, wait a minute, Today, I'm not going to give this guy attention. Today, I'm going to focus on the needs of democracy. And I'm quite confident today is one of the days we should be doing that. It's quite funny. It's not breathing uh, further oxygen when uh, a fire's also burning. Can I just make a counterpoint to this? And it is a conversation that I have um, certainly among my friends on a, on a regular basis. Could an argument be made that the initial attempt in taking over Twitter in this case was about rebalancing and finding some form of middle ground between saying inappropriate, hateful things, which will always be wrong. And as, as you said, there is data now suggesting that that's been amplified on, on Twitter versus not being able to say anything that might be taken offence or puts you at risk of being, um, for want of a better word, cancelled or in danger of a, a career-ending event. There is a middle ground, and I'm still not sure in society, wherever you are in the world, we've sort of found that balance yet. Could the intentions in the beginning be pure, but the whole thing's now out of control? I think in principle that that point is correct. What I think makes it less relevant here right. is that we're dealing with a, a platform that is controlled by an individual. And 
it's centralized. It used to be the internet was highly distributed and there were lots and lots of places where conversations took place. And the scale was much smaller and therefore the economics were much, much smaller. And what happened was Google, then Facebook, and then later Twitter figured out how to centralize the communications on the internet and to centralize them in a way where individuals wound up having huge amounts of control. And that made us tremendously dependent on the values, the principles, and the behavior of those individuals. And if those individuals had proved to be, you know, focused on the interests of society and very pro-democracy and pro-civil liberties, that would have worked out well. In which case, your point would be completely the core one. But in this particular case, that's not what happened. That these platforms are dominated by people with very extreme viewpoints who've attempted to impose their views on the entire country. Which, by the way, if we had a national debate about this and concluded that's what we wanted, that would be fine. But that's not what's going on. This is going on basically because we as a country are not acting as though we're in control. We're acting as though we're powerless in this equation, and we're not. And I just wish we could have the debate and have that thing right out in the open. Right now, we're just sort of sitting there and going, well, Musk is in charge, and he is. It's a private business. He can do whatever he wants. But we should not give so much power to that business. And that's what journalists are doing now. They're pretending like there's no other place for them to have their conversations. I'm, I'm getting a deja vu sensation because I think there are other tech companies we could substitute in uh, for this conversation as well that you and I have had in the past. Um, it's such an important conversation to have. What's going on in the tech sector, Roger? Let's broaden this out, quite frankly. What has been achieved over the last 10 years? Because some of the big tech companies that we were talking about there, they were, or at least were founded in the decades previous to the last. And I just look at the, the investment tide having gone out and a lot of the public companies' share prices having fallen um, over the last year. But it's sort of reminiscent of, I think, something that was or wasn't achieved over the last decade. What do you make of what we've seen over the last 10 years? What's the message today and what are your hopes for perhaps the next decade? So, so Julia, if you think back to the late 90s into the early aughts, a set of companies got created in that era. And in one case, Apple rebuilt in that, that became enormously valuable and absolutely central to our economy. So, you know, Google, Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, Netflix, you know, a whole bunch of companies became really substantial, not just by market value, but also by revenue and impact on culture. If we look at the past decade, the hallmark of that decade was the concept of the unicorn, the private tech company, a startup that would be worth billions of dollars before it had any revenues. And there were a thousand of them as recently as the first quarter of this year. But now we've had this big shock to the economy. First, we had the COVID pandemic and then Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And that's driven up interest rates, it's driven up inflation, and it's caused countries, it's really taken political unrest around the world and caused countries to move away from optimizing for economic growth to now taking into account all kinds of other geopolitical issues. And so there's a lot of tension in global trade. That has disrupted the whole economy. It's disrupted the market. It's taken tech stocks down. I think there are 450 that are down 70% or more this year. There are now no uh, tech startups from the past decade that are ranked in the top 250 market cap 
companies in the world. There are uh, at least none in the from the U.S. And there are is one company in the Fortune 500 at number 437. It's Coinbase, Coinbase. a company that yeah. not be able to hold that position. I think we're looking at a lost decade. And you know, because I've been arguing that this has been an issue for a number of years, mm. that when stock prices were up, nobody wanted to take the risk of messing. But now that we're flushing all of this nonsense out, we can actually look back at the last decade and realize in many ways, it was just a massive confidence game that people were promoting ideas in some cases like self-driving cars or crypto that either defied the laws of physics or defied the laws of finance. And, you know, now that those things are being washed out, I think it's an opportunity for tech to redirect itself at the biggest issues that society faces. Things like climate change, things like healthcare, education, things like income inequality. Technology can make our lives so much better. And we have a moment, an opportunity right now where the cost is actually really low. We can recognize that we made a mistake for the past decade and go, you know what, we're just not going to do that again. We're going to do something better. So I'm very optimistic about what tech can do now. And in part because the market is doing the corrective action that we desperately needed to do to clean up the mess. Yeah. And now we as journalists have to not breathe oxygen into uh, lifeless stories or um, stupidity, perhaps, and push for the solutions to some of the world's biggest problems. Um, I've got my marching orders. Roger, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so Jill, much. Thanks for having Happy me Happy New on. Year, the co-founder of Elevation Partners. Thank you. Okay, and a brief update just moments ago. Benjamin Netanyahu took the reins of the Israeli government for the sixth time. He's just been sworn in as the Israeli prime minister. Netanyahu stitched together a right-wing coalition, which was approved by the Knesset just a few moments ago. He was already, of course, Israel's longest-serving prime minister. Okay, that's it for the show. Thank you so much for watching. Marketplace Europe is next, and I wish you a very happy new year. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.